Welcome this morning. I might get a little uh, emotional. I was a little emotional before the survey even started because I don't just get right to the meat, <laughs> in a sense. But may, maybe you know, maybe you don't know. It doesn't really matter what you know, but I want you to know this, is that this week the spiritual battle has been intense to disrupt today. Right? Your adversary... Your adversary does not want you here, and he definitely does not want you to do what you just did. You know what you just did? Psalms 33 says, Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for your praise, for praise from the upright is beautiful. We just participated in something that's beautiful. Praise the Lord with the harp or the guitar. Make melody to him with an instrument of ten strings or the bass guitar, or the keyboard. Sing to him a new song, play skillfully with a shout of joy, for the word of the Lord is right, and all, who <clears throat> and all his work is done in truth. He loves the righteous, he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his goodness, the goodness of the Lord. The battle this week is, really comes down to a battle over truth. And you guys are here to celebrate. We're here to celebrate. We're here to celebrate early this morning. You're going to continue to celebrate, I believe, throughout the rest of the day. And as you guys head out and have dinner and spend time with one another and family members and, and whatever. But you're celebrating today of all days for Christians. You're celebrating truth. You're standing in truth and you're here to sing and rejoice. And the Word of God says that that's a beautiful thing. That's a powerful thing. Don't, under, don't underestimate what you guys just did. Don't underestimate worship. This is just, ah, we just sing a few songs. That's what the church always does. In God's eyes, it's a beautiful thing. It's an awesome thing. It's great. Uh, not often am I able to, to um, stand with Tammy and, and worship. Uh, but as God is growing this church and bringing more and more people along and, uh, and more and more <laughs> somebody else that can play the drums, let's be honest. Um, it's great to just be out there and worship in that way with you guys. We're here to celebrate the resurrection. I want to start with kind of an odd way because um, for some reason, I have a way of uh, telling jokes that are generally pretty flat. And you guys know that, so I might as well start with them. But I was asking Josh uh, Allwine the other day on the phone. We were talking, if you know Josh, he's our head deacon. He's a big-time computer guy. And I said, hey, Josh, do you know that God's got an IP and he's, he started laughing on the phone. He says, I didn't even think that you knew, knew what an IP was. I'm like, well, you're right about that. Like, I don't know. Like, whatever. Internet protocol, like, that's what Google told me, right? So it is what it is. He said, all right, after we got done laughing about it, he said, all right, so what's God's IP? And God's IP is incorruptible promises for you and for me and for anybody who would believe in him. We're going to look at those in a little quick definition of what I'm talking about. The definition of corruptible uh, is, is that that can be corrupted. So what is corrupt? Uh, it's to destroy something's integrity. If something's going to be corrupted, it's going to be, it's, going, it's integrity, it's strength is going to be corrupted. This week I was kind of blessed, uh, kind of oddly enough, um, those of you that know that we live out past Northwest Alloys and and uh, a buddy of mine works for Bonneville Power Administration. He called me and he says, hey, he says, uh, do you want a power pole? I said, yeah, I saw you guys are working there. And uh, 
He says, yeah, he says, we've got to take out a pole. He says, do you want it? And I said, well, how long is it? 85 feet. I said, well, Bob, how in the blazes am I going to haul something that's 85 feet? He says, we'll cut it in whatever length you want. He says, we just don't want to haul it off. He says, yeah, I'll take a power pole. Like everybody needs a power pole, right? <laughs> I have no idea what I'm going to do with power pole. But now I have two 32-foot, easy mother, right? <laughs> now I have two 32-foot power poles, but as I got them home and started to examining what was what going on, is the top of that power pole is corrupted. Its integrity is shot. And you can't see it from the ground. That's why they fly helicopters over them, right? They take a closer look. But the top of that pole between where the brace, the, the, metal, the metal cross piece is, and the top of the pole where the guy wires come back down, now that you get it down on the ground, you can see that that thing is cracked almost in two. Its integrity is corrupted. When I think of corrupt, I think of terms and with metal more than wood. I think of these types of words, corroded, compromised, or decay. But God's promises for you and for me are without any of these. They are absolutely 100% void of any compromise, any corruption, and any decay. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of God's word. Is we can stand on absolute truth because that's, that's why the battle was hot, heavy this week. But it's, it's a battle to try to decay and to try to take away from God's word. Try to minimize what God's really saying. Trying to shift the focus, shift the blame. Those are the enemy's tactics, but the reality is, is that God's promises and His Word, they're without any of those. In fact, they're just the opposite. They're incorruptible. They're always perfect. We're going to study today a little bit from the life of the Apostle Peter. And P Peter spoke and wrote extensively about the incorruptible promises of God. As we celebrate today and the resurrection of Christ, we're going to take a look at his resurrection from Peter's vantage point. We're going to take a look at it from Peter's vantage point. We're going to take a look at what Peter saw with his own eyes, what he experienced in the flesh, in person. We're going to take a look at what Peter said because of what he saw. Then we're going to take a look at what Peter wrote down years later. Those three things, kind of Peter's perspective. Now, Peter was an interesting guy. For those of you that don't know or haven't ever dove into the Gospels, Peter was, uh, I have kind of some, just some character definitions uh, and, and kind of some facts to go with it. Peter was Jesus' first, kind of like his, his main guy, like his closest, wasn't necessarily his, the first guy that he talked to, but he was uh, one of the, he was the closest follower uh, but Peter was kind of headstrong, quick-tempered, but fiercely loyal. And even in that, uh, even in that, uh, that, um, even with that attitude of being so loyal to Christ, there was times that he said things long before he actually st stopped to think about what he was even saying. So Jesus had a tendency to rebuke Peter. But Peter was a guy, he was, a, he was an action type of a guy. He was an action type of a guy. He was, he was a guy on the move. 
The Gospel of John records for us the things that Peter saw pertaining to Jesus' resurrection. Let's dive into to what Peter saw that morning. John chapter 20 records the events of the resurrection morning. Chapter 20 starts off and says, Now the first day of the week Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciples whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. Interestingly enough there, before we get further, Mary thought that somebody else took the body. (laughs) Oddly enough, the counter was true in later days as they were trying to squish out this Christianity that had just started to bloom and these Christ followers that were now expanding. The rumor in that day was that the disciples took the body. But Mary says, hey, somebody else has taken him. Verse 3, Peter Therefore went out and the other disciples, John was talking about himself and third person here, and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, he stooping down and looking in saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. He, John, the <clears throat> Apostle John kind of, ta- kind of laying out his own experience in a way, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went right into the tomb. And he saw the linen clothes lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. A little footnote by John saying, hey, we didn't figure this out till later on. But here's the events. Here's what we saw. Here's what we experienced. We were there in person. We were there with all the questions. What's going on? Where's the body? Why are the clothes lying there? Why is the handkerchief folded? That'd be my question. It's like, who takes the time to, to do this? How did, the, how did the rock even get moved in the first place? Was Mary right? Did somebody else roll it away? Did the Roman you know, legion roll in and push that thing out of the way and do something in the middle of the night that we didn't see? What's going on here? But what they saw was undeniable. And the essence of what they saw can be summed up in these three statements. Peter saw the empty tomb. Peter saw the empty tomb. John beat him there, but Peter was running so hard to find out where his buddy went, where his friend went, where his his Savior and Lord went. He didn't even slow down. He just blasted right in. Now, when I say blasted right in, He's diving inside of a small box like you going up into your attic. And he hits it at full stride. I'm kind of curious how that went. But he went right in. He saw the empty tomb. He was inside the empty tomb. He's not a casual observer looking at it from, you know, a long ways off. He was right there in person, in the flesh, taking it all in. Saw the grave clothes. He saw the grave clothes. Now, mind you, as we talk about these things, that uh, <clears throat> there was a sense in that day and in that culture where these things were all unclean. If you look into the Old Testament, specifically in Le- uh, Leviticus, you'll kind of see all of the rules and regulations that go with dealing with dead bodies. 
But Peter saw it. He was right there. He was taking it all in. He saw the grave clothes. He saw what Jesus was wrapped up in. What happened? What must have been going through his mind as he's sitting there trying to, trying to dial all this together in some sort of, a, some sort of a explanation in his mind? And he saw that handkerchief sitting there. Verse 9 says that they didn't quite understand that resurrection part just yet, but they knew something was different. They knew something was different. What else did they see? What else did Peter see? Drop to verse 19, where John records, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, when the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, they're huddled up, the curtains are drawn, they've come together as a team to kind of figure out what, what's happening here. And what are we going to do next? Because if they could do what they did to Jesus, why wouldn't they do all of that to all of us? Right? If they could, if they could pull off a, a mock trial on false pretenses, if they, could, if, they could, uh, uh, if they could jimmy the whole thing up like they did and push it through, if the Jews could convince the Romans and the Romans can pass it back and then this thing went back and forth if you know the account of his trial, they can pull all that off with our Savior, with our rabbi. What's to say they can't do it to us? Are they coming for us? So Paul says here, they're behind, when the doors were shut, they're all assembled and they're afraid of the Jewish leadership. They all saw this, including Peter, where John records, Jesus came and stood in the midst of them and said, Peace be with you. He answered their fear. He answered their fear, and I'm telling you now and here, He will answer your fears with a word of peace, with a message of peace. The most recorded uh, encouragement in the Bible is don't fear. Don't be afraid. And Jesus stands in the midst of his guys, the guys that he handpicked to be his disciples and to be the apostles that would then just take the gospel of Christ and just light the world on fire with it. And he stands right in the midst of them. He says, hey guys, don't be afraid. Peace is a, exactly the opposite of fear. Says, peace be with you. When he said this, he showed him his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I always figured that that sentence there by John, the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord, was in reality of the moment it happened, and then reading it now, seems kind of a little like, duh, right? Like, yeah, John, you talk about glad. He says, don't be afraid, and he says, I'm going to show you who I am. Go ahead and take a look. Take a look at my feet. It's me. And Peter saw it. Peter saw Jesus. And Peter saw the evidence of the crucifixion. In the Gospels, all four of them, they go on and on. About the 40 days that Jesus spent with his followers, you could just go right through from here on out and look at the other 
the other, uh, the other books and see the same thing, that Jesus spent time with his followers. They had the meals, they had the fishing, the conversations, the ascension. They saw it. Peter saw all that. He experienced it. Do you think that he would skip one second of that from this point forward? Absolutely not. I don't think so. I think they were all locked in. Even Thomas, when he got a peek, right? They were locked in. They weren't going to miss a moment of what Jesus had to offer. Not now. Peter and over 500 people witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. They witnessed his in his resurrected body. So what was the response to all this? Like what was what 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 happened then? Like to all that they saw, to all that they experienced, to all that they took in, you know, seeing Jesus now in a resurrected body, we talked about that quite a few weeks ago where it's you know, it's 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 bizarre. You're not limited physically like we're limited physically. I don't want to get off on a rabbit trail, but it must have seemed in a sense, bizarre. But they were fired up about it. And the response that Peter has demonstrates his excitement. The response that, what it, the, the next question is, what did he say? We're going to get to that. I'll tell you what Peter said. Peter gave the best sermon that's ever been recorded. And there's been millions and millions and millions of sermons that have been either written down or recorded digitally or, or passed, you know, in the old days and the ancient times, passed around, all of that. You won't find a more penetrating sermon and word from somebody that saw Jesus' resurrection, saw Him alive in the flesh, and then uh, alive in the resurrected body. You won't find anything, anywhere, you can search Google all you want to. You won't find anything that compares to Acts chapter 2. Not a single thing. Acts chapter 2, Peter's address to the Jewish leadership is absolute fire. Peter speaking to the leadership in Israel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Peter says this, I'm just going to tee up the verses we're going to get to. In chapter 2, verse 22, Jesus says, Peter says excuse me, that Jesus was a man attested by God by miracles, by signs and wonders. He was the real deal. Like, they were the ones, the Jewish leadership were the ones that were supposed to get it. They were the ones that were teaching everybody all the stuff from the, the Old Testament, the major and the minor prophets. They were the ones that were supposed to see it. They completely missed it. And Peter walks in, an average dude, an average guy, a fisherman, and he says, let me tell you, let me square this thing up. You guys missed it. Because this was the guy. You missed it. Jesus, he, Peter says this also in verse 23. He says it was Jesus that was tried, crucified. He died and God raised him up again. Then Peter zeroes in and here's his message. Here's what he had to say. Well, all of it's what he had to say. I'm just grabbing a few verses out of the middle of it. Acts chapter 2 verses 29 through 33 Peter addresses them, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us today. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on the throne. Verse 31 says, He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, 
that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see what? What does your Bible say? Nor would his flesh see corruption. He's not going to see corruption. Back to that whole concept. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up of which we are all witnesses. So now he's saying what he saw. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Peter's basically saying, you want to know why we're on fire? You want to know why I'm speaking so passionately? Because you missed it. God pours His Spirit out on His people, and then now it's our job. Now it's our job to proclaim God's message. You had a chance. You, you have, if you read the rest of the sermon, they absolutely are melted in their seats. And they're like, what do we do now? And Peter says, hey, you want to, know, you, you want to be part of the team? You want to be in? You want to have what God has done in us and what he's going to do through us? Repent for your sins. Repent for your sins. Trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior. Live for Him. Follow Him. Disregard uh, all of the the foolishness. Disregard all of the self-righteousness. Disregard all of your sins. Renounce them. Move forward in faith with us. That's my long extended version. It simply says it's time to repent. That's the end of the story. What Peter has to say is, hey, there's no corruption to Jesus' resurrected body. We saw it. We saw it, not only did we see it, is we're going to talk about it. And if you know anything of the coming chapters in the book of Acts, they would not stop talking about it. They would not quit. They would not cease. And they endured beatings, They endured stonings. They endured persecution. They endured being mocked, being scoffed. They endured being thrown out of their own communities. They endured as a group uh, uh, just the most horrific things clear to their own martyrdom. They would not stop. It wasn't going to stop them. Because it was the message that Jesus left them. That message, the good news of Jesus Christ, we call it the gospel. He came, he died, he rose again, he ascended, and hey, he's coming back. He's coming back. He's coming back. We we live in the gap, so to speak, right? We live inside the, we're, we're waiting for his return. We're waiting for his return. But we're not waiting like, you know, like, like, if you have a six-hour uh, layover in an airport, you know, I'll tell you how it goes. Like after three hours, I'm like this. Really? Like, come on, Tammy, why did you book these tickets? You guys know what I'm saying? Like, that's not how we wait. We're to be active. We're to be in motion. We're to be in ministry. Didn't mean to steal your chair in front of you. Right? That's how we wait. We wait with anticipation. We wait with excitement. He's coming back. Whole nother sermon, whole nother time. 
Let's get to our main text. I haven't even made it to the main text yet. Oh, I got a lot of time. Peter saw it. He spoke it. And after a bunch of persecution, trials, tribulations, after all of that, Peter would sit down and write about it. Peter would sit down and write, and his message, and the message of the apostles never never changed. Through all the pushback, through all of the difficulty, let's call it what it is, through all of the spiritual warfare that they endured in those early years, the message never changed. In fact, Peter, of all of them, and Paul did the same, and I have a little bit from both of them, but Peter goes right into it in his first epistle to talk about these two concepts the resurrection and being incorrupt let's dive into first peter chapter one i'll start in verse three the first two verses is kind of peter addressing uh, the fact that he wrote it and who he's writing it to i'll just tell you that in advance peter's writing to all these churches these upstart churches and Asia Minor, the current day Turkey, uh, that <clears throat> have been started and frankly are, are, are these churches themselves are now under persecution uh, in their own uh, communities. And so Peter says this, jump to verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through, the fa- through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though, for now, <clears throat> though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. There's kind of the idea of what's going on in those communities. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, perish, uh, gold that perishes, though it is being tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, whom having not seen, you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who is in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but (coughs) but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, the things which angels desire to look into. I'm going to pause right there. It's not in my notes, but I've been really diving into this idea here. Uh, Peter mentions it, uh, the things that the angels desire to look into. What are those things? What are those things? And, and, and here are those things. Here's it in a, in a summary type of a statement is that God who created everything, and I think it's in uh, Ezekiel 28, 26, 28, that uh, one or the other, my mind's uh, a little bit 
blank on that. But anyway, God created the angels. Let's give a quick, quick summary. Somewhere in there, he created the angel, Lucifer, who was top shelf, who had great glory, who had great responsibility. And in pride, Lucifer chose to rebel against God. Lucifer takes with him a third of the angelic realm. It's cast down. Have to leave. In God's great and an eternal plan, he, he refashions the earth. It says the earth was without form and void. That's what Genesis tells us. Then God goes to work giving it uh, created order. And he creates man. Hebrews tells us that man was created lower than the angels. Lower than the angels. So you have an angelic realm in the supernatural realm. And you have mankind in the physical realm, in that sense, lower than the angels. We can't do what the angels can do. But guess what? The angels can't do what we can do in some ways. And God's master plan and the things that the angels are looking into is they're looking into the fact that God created mankind lower than the angels. God created a lower being that would choose to worship Him. That would choose to want to glorify Him. They had the option. They could or they couldn't. But if they did, it was their choice. He created a lesser being that would, that would, that would choose to lift Him up. Would choose to follow Him. Would choose to glorify them all their days. And that lesser being would choose to be a part of the movement that's now called Christianity. They would choose Him. So the angels are looking into this because, man, it's fascinating for them. Let's move on. Verse 13, therefore, Peter says to these churches that were struggling, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourself to the former lust as in your ignorance, that was before you were a believer, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Choosing to follow God. That's what the angels are looking into. That's what the angels want to examine. Wow, look at those lesser beings. They're choosing to be like God when a third of us at some point in eternity past chose not to be. And if <clears throat> he says then, he says in verse 17, And if you call on the Father, who is without partiality, judges accordingly to each one's works, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of the Lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, 
not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God which lives and abides forever because all flesh is, is as grass and all the glory of man is the flowers of grass. And the grass withers and the flowers fall away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Peter's written message to the church of Asia Minor and I believe his written message to you and I today comes down to these incorruptible promises. Like you can stand real firm in your faith, unshaken in your hour of trial, unshaken in your tribulation, unshaken when you're not sure what the future holds in your situation, unshaken despite any circumstance, you can stand firm as a Christ follower with these incorruptible promises because verse 3 says we have a living hope. It's not a dead hope. Jesus is our living hope. Every other system of belief who has had some kind of major leader throughout time, they have a dead hope. Because you can go somewhere on this, gray, on this planet, you can dig up their grave, and you can find their remains. But you're never going to find Jesus' remains. Not on this ground. Not in this world. You have an opportunity to spend eternity with Him for sure. Because He's a living hope. You won't find it. The tomb was empty. The rocks pushed out of the way. Jesus was not held back by any man-made uh, situation or some sort of uh, uh, graveside service. He's a living hope. He is our living hope. Because we have a king that's resurrected. He's risen. Amen? We have an inheritance. We have an inheritance, Peter tells us, an incorruptible promise from an incorruptible God. So something, if you believe in, in Christ, this inheritance is going to be passed down to you. You get to participate in that. You get to participate right now. It's not just for then, it's for now. We have an inheritance in Jesus. And we also have this. We also have protection. We're kept by God's power through faith for the coming age. Whatever might happen, let it happen in a sense, because you are kept by Christ if you're a Christ follower. He has you in the palm of your hands. You have nothing to fear. You have nothing to, to, no reason to doubt. You think God's going to, if he knows how many hairs are on your head, and for some of us that's not very many, it's easy to count. For some of us it's a lot, it's impossible to count. Regardless of how many hairs you have on your head, Jesus knows exactly the amount, and he knows exactly what you need. He knows exactly what the situation is with you, and he's keeping you. It's ongoing. We're kept by God's power through faith for the coming age. There's a lot of people out there in our culture that peddle fear. They're trying to get our eyes off of the ball, so to speak. They're trying to get uh, uh, you to buy into the message of fear that they're peddling so that somehow uh, through whatever else is tied to that, you will find some sort of relief in a message and a system and a product and a something. It's God who keeps us. It's His power that keeps us. And if God can take a little 
piece of this earth and create mankind, I don't think he has any problem keeping us for what's going to happen in the future. Verse 18, and that was, by the way, that's verse 5. Verse 18 and 19, our redemption was paid for by the incorruptible blood of Christ. Another reference to uh, that incorruptibility. Uh, Blood by itself will eventually kind of just dry up and kind of just leave a stain and and, and nothing's there, you know, whatever. I've, I've had some kind of, I won't even go there, crazy experiences in the past, uh, cleaning up some real messes. What I love about this passage is the blood that Christ spilled for you, the blood that Christ spilled for me on the cross, paying for my sin, paying for your sin, is incorruptible, Peter says. It's incorruptible. Like the effect of the blood of Christ for your sins will never corrode. It'll never lose its integrity. It will never fade away. It's not going anywhere in that sense, if I can kind of use that picture in our minds. It's incorruptible. Verse 22, verse 20 and 21, another of the incorruptible promises, number five, is is that our belief and faith and hope in God are, drink, are linked directly to Jesus' res- resurrection. You can't separate them out. You, 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 you can't pull it apart. This is the point that's under attack all the time. Uh, in the, now that we have cable you know, networking, the History Channel, all of that. This point right here is what, what uh, there's the world system wants to tear apart limb by limb. So they always have, this time of year, they'll always have these types of uh, programs that start infusing doubt. Well, was it really real? Was it this? Was it that? And they try to slice off the resurrection away from Christianity. You can't do that. It's the central point of all of our Christian faith is the resurrection. So all of it's built on that. They're directly linked. You can't take them apart. Verse 23, for the sake of time, I'll move quick. The sixth incorruptible promise found in 1 Peter 1 is that we're reborn with a new spiritual DNA. When you accept Christ, when you trust in Him, when you receive salvation from Christ, understanding who He is, and I always use this type of phrase, when you you understand and believe that Jesus is who Jesus said He was, Don't want to believe me? Don't want to believe your neighbor? Don't want to believe the guy down the street? Don't want to believe anybody about it? Fine. Do your own research, right? That's what I tell people. Like, hey, don't take it from me. What if I'm lying to you? (laughs) What if I'm lying to you, Mike? Eh, you wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. But the reality is, is that you have to believe it for you. And you have to dig it up for yourself. You can't nurse along on somebody else's faith. You can't ride somebody else's coattails. Dig it up for yourself. What the Bible says, and what I believe, and what you, if you're a Christian, believe, is that we're reborn. We're reborn. John 3.16. We're reborn. Jesus' whole conversation with Nicodemus in chapter 3 of John is all about this central point. We're reborn, and here's what we get. <laughs> this is the greatest part of the whole thing. Is you get a new spiritual DNA. You get a new spiritual DNA. In Christ, you you look at things different. You look at yourself different. You're more aware of your own issues. 
You're, you're, especially if you're really excited like what I was when I was, you know, in that 19, 20-year-old age, and, and this is all fresh and new. Like, man, I was seeing, man, that's sinful. Man, Lord, forgive me. You know, boom, you're quick to ask for forgiveness. You, you change. You're more gracious. You're more loving. Because you see through a different set of lenses. And you seeing through a different set of lenses is all part of how God is remaking you. It's all part of the new spiritual DNA as He has put His Holy Spirit in you as a new believer to look and see and act and believe and think differently. Differently. Romans tells us it's the renewing of the mind. So we have a new DNA. Maybe you're here and uh, you've never heard any of this and you're thinking, wow, this guy's weird. <coughs> I would say, welcome to the club. I see a weird guy every time I step to the mirror. <laughs> no, on the serious side, uh, I want to encourage you with this. Jesus' own words, if you want to know, okay, what did uh, Jesus say about himself? Is Jesus who he says he is, his words recorded in John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Though the tent's going to fade away at some point, uh, though that uh, weird things happen, accidents happen, unforeseen things happen, like my good buddy Dick passing away, unexpectedly, it was ex unexpected only from our perspective, not from God's perspective, Right? All of that, though you may die, if you're in Christ, he says you're going to live. And whoever lives and believes in me, there it is, the statement, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And he asked Martha there in that moment of grief, he says, hey Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe that what I'm saying about me is true? I said a couple weeks ago, or maybe it was last week, this is the biggest question in the Bible found in John chapter 11. Because Jesus is just laying it out flat on the table. He says, in a sense, kind of my uh, remake of the story, Martha, Mary, they're in grief. Their brother Lazarus, Jesus' good friend, had just died. Jesus didn't make it back in time. They were in so in hopes that he would be there to rescue and to create a, you know, perform a miracle, keep, you know, heal him up, bring him back to good health. It wasn't there. It didn't happen. Jesus shows up. Lazarus is already in the grave. Martha's just grieving terribly about it. And Jesus says, hey, you got nothing to fear. I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe that that's true? Do you believe that that's true? And I'm here to say for all of us, do you believe that that's true? It's the best question in the whole of the Bible, cover to cover. Peter was a witness to that resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus, Peter was a witness to Lazarus being brought back to life, as we talked about earlier this morning. But uh, Peter... He, he, he saw it. He saw it. He talked about it. He wrote about it. In fact, actually, a couple chapters later in First Peter, Peter tells us this in chapter 3. He says uh, in verse 18, For Christ also suffered once 
for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. He lays out the gospel right there, that Jesus came and that he suffered, the just for the unjust, that you and I might have a relationship with him, that we might have eternity with him, that we could be reborn, that we could live differently, that we can, in a sense, shed that old man with all of those old problems, all of those old issues, that we would have the freedom, that we would have the freedom, not just in, in the future, but that you and I would have the freedom today and the power by His Holy Spirit today to say no to sin and to say yes to godliness. It doesn't happen any other way. It doesn't happen through the, you know, whatever programs. It doesn't happen in any other context. Verse 21, drop down a few. Peter then says, there's also this antitype, which now saves baptism. He's kind of given them a picture, drawn a, a parallel here. Not the removal of filth or, uh, of, from the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. There it is. We get a good conscience towards God because we're not riding around and, uh, in our sin. We're not stewing in our own sinful behavior. You don't have to. You have victory in Christ with this new spiritual DNA. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he says, that's how it happens. Who has gone into heaven is the right hand of the Father. Angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. So nobody's on top of Jesus in that sense. Like he's on top of all of it. His resurrection is proof that he's on top of all of that. That if somebody can come back from the dead, and I mean come back from the dead, not to die again like Lazarus, but, but come back from the dead in a sense that they have a new resurrected body and it's not some you know highfalutin secret that's locked up in some cave somewhere, but is revealed to his guys, revealed to his followers, was revealed to, to hundreds of people, as Paul says in <clears throat> to the Corinthians, hey, you don't believe me, go check out, go talk to the people that have seen him. Speaking of Paul, he also wrote about the centrality of Jesus' resurrection as the power plant for our lives. I love this verse. We'll get right to it. Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Paul says this, that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, Paul was on... Uh, <clears throat> the heavy hitter for Judaism in the first century, trying to stamp out Christianity. Uh, Jesus says, I'll take you, converts him to Christianity, uh, blinds him for a while, and then uh, puts him on the right team. So Paul was finding all of his own righteousness from the law at one point. Uh, he cashed all of that in, and he goes on to say, but that which is through faith in Christ... That's his transformation. That's, he, he's laying out how he got his new spiritual DNA. He got it through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. And here's the reason why. And here's what was so precious to him and precious to Peter and precious to all the apostles and is precious to you and I right here today. That we might know the power, the power of Jesus' resurrection. Right? Right? 
Don't think about Jesus' resurrection, you know, as just an event that happened, you know, way long ago, 2,022 years ago, you know, and we're just eventing something, we're just here to celebrate something that happened a long time, which is true. I'm not saying that, the, that, that, you know, on one level that that's not true. It is true that we celebrate it, and it is true that it happened a long time ago, but it has lasting effects in all of the, all the lives of Jesus' disciples. It is the power of Jesus' resurrection. It's the power of Jesus' resurrection that was so precious to Paul because it changed his life. It changed what he understood. It changed the trajectory of where he was going literally and spiritually. Because he's saying here, he says, hey, I put all of my faith in how good I could be. I put all of my trust in the fact that I could keep all of the the whatevers of Judaism. That I could be a, a, a good Israeli that I could be a good Jew doing what God has said to do in all of the Old Testament. The reality is, is that he's essentially saying, hey, I missed it with that. That's not it. All of, that, all of that over there that I used to be so enthralled with and so involved in and, and that I was willing to kill Christians on behalf of, all of that would never get me where God really calls me to be. But the power of the resurrection will power of the resurrection will get you there. And it's in that's why it's a power plant for believers. All of humanity for all of history has tried to find transcendence. I don't know if you guys understand, I know it's a big word for a farmer to say. Transcendence really boils down to this, something beyond, something greater. Something, so if we put it transcendence in the sense of our our existence, transcendence would be an existence greater than what we have now. That's what it means. So as you read through the Bible, you're going to see all of these markers along the way where people are trying to find transcendence, something greater, something more fulfilling. That's what the Tower of Babel's all about. They were trying to find transcendence and build something to God. <coughs> a longing for something beyond this life and there's all kinds of people that are out there that will try to con you into thinking this is the way to get it there's one way that it comes because Jesus said the way to the father is narrow the way to destruction it's a wide road anybody can take it multi-lane freeway but the way to the father the way to really find transcendence, the way to really find whatever it is in you that's really been itching for your whole life that's better than what you have is in Christ. And the power of His resurrection is is on full display in believers as you trust in Him and trust in Him alone. The power of Jesus' resurrection is, is what teaches you to say no to, 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 to sin. So I'm not going to go there. That's something that will lead to death. I'm going to say yes to life. That's where the power comes up. That's where the fuel is. Do you believe, I have a list of questions because I like writing down questions, I guess. I guess I'll close with this. Is, is this what you believe? It's what I believe. I believe... As I know many of you, I could say with certainty there's lots of yeses to these things. 
Maybe there's some that don't believe this. I'd encourage you to investigate that. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for the payment for your sins? I'm going to say yes. Do you believe that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life as he said himself? I'll say yeah, absolutely. Unequivocally yes. Do you believe that it's God's desire for all men to be saved, that to hear the gospel? Absolutely. Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and that his resurrection is the fuel for our lives to endure whatever may come? That's a little different question. But that's what I want to hone in on and say, that's where we have to, to, to go. That's where we have to be. That's what gets us through today. That's what will get us through the coming days. It's not a mantra. It's not a celebration of what happened a long time ago. It really boils down to the fact that today's a celebration in a, in a lot of ways in what God is doing today because of his resurrection that happened a long time ago. To these questions, I would say that according to what they write and the lives that they lived, the history that proves out these men, uh, I'd say, yeah. <laughs> well, Jesus said most of this, so obviously he gets a yes. Peter gets a yes. Paul gets a yes. Get a yes. Make sure you're in that yes category today. Make sure you're in that believing category today. Maybe you've grown up in church, and hey, this was my story, right? Maybe you've grown up in church and just floated on your parents' belief, and it was the right thing to do, and it was socially acceptable, it was normal, right? Don't stay in that lane. Young folks especially, don't stay in that lane. What Jesus said about himself is true, and it needs to be, uh, and I'm encouraging you, that you have to believe that for yourself. And your parents are doing the best job that they can do to teach you those lessons, to, to continue to keep the gospel in front of you, but you can't be on your heels and coast on mom and dad's faith. It's not going to happen. Don't do what I did. Don't do what I did. Moms and dads, same thing. Apply it differently. Don't coast on what the church is doing, right? Don't coast on what the church is doing. Be engaged. I'm not saying disengage. But don't think that the church is here to teach all your kids something that you should be teaching them themselves. Grandparents, the same thing. You have a great opportunity to engage with younger people. And there's a sea of people in this room, that older folks, that need your mentoring. They need your wisdom. They need your engagement in their lives. Don't give up on that. Don't give up on that. We have an awesome message. We have nothing to fear by sharing this message. We have, nothing to, we have everything to gain. Everything to gain by staying deeper and deeper engaged in one another's lives and encouraging one another, as the word says, spurring one another on in the faith. Don't give up on it. Don't get frustrated. Say yes to the resurrection and celebrate today as we leave here God's goodness and the fact that Jesus still lives. Right? That he's risen. Amen? The worship team will come on up. We'll close. We'll close with our last song and uh, continue to celebrate through the rest of today.